0: Frightening, frightening. But anyway, be it as it may, I can tell you that uh, the public share I'll be giving for the men, for the YU crowd, the share has one purpose to refute Rabbi David Hartman, the way he described the rub in uh, the Torah Vederecheret's uh, piece. I'm still uh, smarting from that. Rabbi Meisman will catch up with that at a later date. But Dialet Sarab shaita Anyway, today's year, uh, I want, you know we'll, we'll deal with Hashka tomorrow, as a matter of fact, tomorrow I shifted gears and I'm just going to react to your reactions to last week and I have something major to say vis-a-vis uh, David Ram, who uh, asked me a wonderful question and I have a very well thought out answer, so I'm going to Ram the Ram tomorrow. Uh, but now, 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 now we're back here. And today's she is really fabulous as far as, you know, the material, the drama. But first, let's reiterate. Rav Herzog, as I said, Rav Herzog, uh, I I don't know, you fellas come in, you know, to you it's an ancient figure. But uh, I lived the period and I studied the period. As a matter of fact, I even have letters of Rav Herzog to, uh, to Rabbi Revel, because Rabbi Revel desperately wanted Rabbi Herzog to visit the yeshiva, wanted to give him an honorary degree. And uh, Rabbi Herzog uh, writes to Rabbi Revel. I believe I have it in, the, I believe I have it in my book on Revel. I, I, you know, I don't know at that point. It's many years since I wrote the volume. And even though it was reprinted in the early 80s, but there was very little revision made. I made a few additions, but uh, that was it. But rabbi, rabbi Revel wanted to give Rabbi Herzog an honorary degree, an honorary doctorate, and he's elected chief rabbi of Palestine. And it would have brought tremendous prestige to the yeshiva because the Zionist movement was very strong. It was during the Hitler period already, and you have the state of Israel, the, the the nascent the forerunner of the state of Israel fighting the British. I mean it would have brought and everyone was a Zionist then. It wasn't Shaykh in America. I think there were one or two Rabbanim of Agurat Harabanim were not Zionist. Everyone else was was a Zionist. So when he offers the honor honorary doctor to Rabbi Herzog, Rabbi Herzog a fax, a, a telegrams him back, or writes to him, writes him back. I, I forget already if the telegram, but I, I saw it, I have it, I have a copy of it. Anyway, he he writes to him, that you want to give me an honorary doctor. He says, I'm ashamed of my real doctorate. Why? Because he had come to you to Shalayim, and as I told you, the, the Many of the kohanim of Rav Kook opposed to him because he had a doctorate. They were worried. What kind of person is this? What kind of modern rabbi? And the majority wanted at that time. See, today Mizrahi would never elect a chief rabbi with a doctorate. It's not Shaykh. It couldn't get off the floor today because it's a different world today. But but in in those days they wanted someone broad with a doctorate. And and Rav Herzog probably came to Yerushalayim and the Kanoim reading his out, So he said all the reshainim on the but he went on to become a beloved chief rabbi although I have to be honest towards the end of his life this is true that uh, he visited Ponovich and some of the students started cheering him this already had to be the mid-50s and people who live in Eretz Yisrael Rav, Rav have always spoken about it that that's when they realized the schism that was starting to develop in the Torah world until that time that schism was not there. And whether you were a either or an Agudist, it was a minor question. The unity of the Torah world was such that Chevron Yeshiva, which was the most preeminent Yeshiva at the time, and Panovich was just starting, the Mizrachi Agudah question was a bland question. Like you take Rav Yosef Shlomo Kahneman, the Panovich Rav may have been an Agudist, but he was, if I can quote Rav Leisa Silva, my little sister was the Mizrahi. And that was exactly the Pun of a shirav. If you take the Chevron of Rosh Yeshiva, to a certain degree, the same description would be true. Uh, I mean, when you look back to Lavush Mordechai, Rav Moshe Mat who of course was, uh, died in, I believe, 1933, but if you take the man who founded Chevron Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, the Lavush Mordechai, it's very hard to characterize him as anti Mizrahi. He was a member of Agudat Yisrael, but you got to go a long way to say that the Mordechai was opposed to the concept of Misrahi and, and Rav Herzog was beloved by all. He was he was a, the greatest bucky of his generation. And he would come into Hebron and talk and learn. And the students loved him. And here's a man who was autodidactic. Later they say he once came to Panovich. And that's where you could see the schism already. And it was shocking because Rav Herzog, of all people... Was above it all. He was the Vata Yeshiva. He worked together with Rav Reuven Katz. I mean, these, these were these were Litvish people. Rav Herzog was autodidactic, as I told you. he Was raised in France, but his heart was in was in Poland in Lita, and the man grew with the job. Everything I told you last week. If I cannot stress enough, a man who was unknown basically elected only by a majority uh, in a difficult election over Rav Yaakov Moshe Chalap, who is very well known. And Rav Herzog became a tel kalpiyot, tel upon panim Rav Herzog. Now, the Heichal Yitzhak, as I mentioned many times, and you'll see it this year, next year, some of the tshub, but it's hard to know what the outcome was, because it's all done from manuscript. He didn't edit it, he had no time. But hayav his whole life was involved with, with Hitler, with, with Hakamet Bedinat Yisrael, with so many life and death problems, it's, it's, it's indescribable. And the man died, I don't think he hit 60 years of age when he died. And yet when you looked at his his pictures, he looked like he was 85. And people say it was the Atmas Nefesh of the Shoah and, and the Gush Etzion, everything that we've spoken about. Now, last week we dealt with a case from Italy, and that's a classic case, a car that goes over a, uh, a bridge into the water. It would be very similar, a car that fell over the bridge, uh, the George Washington Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, some of the other big bridges in New York, the Goebbels Bridge, and the and the bodies are swept away this would be the same shiva the bay. Um, the, then when he dealt however with the holocaust here he was far reaching and you see in that shiva with the holocaust where he's not dealing with any one individual case but he's dealing with the holocaust in general basically I can conclude for, from Rav Herzog's shiva that he would be mother in every instance. It would be hard to find an instance of someone missing after the Holocaust, even if the only testimony you could provide that he last was seen in Warsaw, was last seen in Kovna, was last seen in whatever city he was, but he was in an area that was conquered by the Nazis, it was seen, Rav Herzog would always agree that there's a trade would be and uh, Rav, Rav, Rav Moshe took issue I showed you that one Shuv Rav Moshe where the only testimony you had that he was last seen Rav Maysha would take issue uh, today to a certain degree you'll see uh, it comes up too now uh, what's interesting about Rav Hurtsekin is what I told you and just today I, Dafko is learn, I'm i learning Yuvamat now and I'm at the tail end of Yuvamat and I always like to look into the unum in uh, Steinzel's. So I love the Yunim because he summarizes for you some interesting Problems what the Rishonim Achronim deal with. So I saw today. Uh, he's dealing exactly with the question I dealt with in class with the three Rubei and the two Sveikot happening at once, and that you have to have both Sveikot happening once. He's dealing with the Chazukah of Can she can can she be divorced? Can she be divorced? And he deals with Sveikot If you know the so so he deals with the problem that the Sveikot do not happen at once. So one thing is certain, and this this what I told you is absolutely correct that in all these issues the svakar happen instantaneously cause nowadays the minute you find out your husband is missing the way you find out automatically makes the double suffix. let's say you find out by mail at the moment you find out by mail at that moment you should have had a letter that he's alive let's say you find out by telephone today right it's a much smaller world at the moment you have that telephone call you should have the telephone call from your husband the fact that he didn't telephone is in it. You follow what I'm trying to say, Matthew? That it's not a suffix that happens a year later today. We wait a year, la ravcha de Milka, That's a different story. La ravcha de Milta, you know, you know what that's a rabbinic expression. La ravcha de Milta means that we want to be certain uh, to add revach, to add shtans, uh, to add strength to, to the question under discussion. So we wait a year, la ravcha de Milta. But uh, you don't have to wait a year. That suffix happens immediately. You're waiting a year it adds to the heta. So, Rav Herzog, it's absolutely Tre rube, Trey Sveikot right down the line. Okay. Now we get involved and today, the heart of today's year, we're going to deal with the Tzvi hirsch Lish again and I'm going to show you what happened. Hirsch uh, is your son Levi? that I see Levi Cooper? He's teaching uh, Hasidus and Midrashat Maria. That's your son who just got married to my student's sister, Sen I was very proud when I saw that. Now, uh, I'm going to deal. I want you to know that I'm giving a public lecture on 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 the Rav to the uh, to the you know to the students here in the one-year program, whatever it is. I think it's March 8th, Tuesday. So uh, I'm dealing. My main purpose in the lecture is to refute Rabbi Hartman because it's time you know it's time to speak up a little bit. When am I a baby? I have to be afraid? I can also get up there and, and strike at it. Doesn't matter. But uh, but in the lecture, I am proving conclusively. That the Rav was a litvak slash chassid. And uh, I'll, you, 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 you should tell your son he might, he might want to hear that lecture. Now, uh, so then with Fiersmaishlis. Now, what I, uh, what I said last week in honor of Matthew is that every community, and it's, it's very true, I, it's, it's overwhelming to me how these survivors wound up in so many different communities in Baltimore, and, and, and in Chicago, in New York, and each one opened up a little shtibble. And they succeeded, and they were what was called the Sherat Inevitably, they were Hungarians. And the Hungarians, you see, let, let me say something I didn't say last week, but it's a sociological point. And if, if I saw in the latest Greville catalog that if Chaim Soloveitchik is called the professor of contemporary Haredi civilization, then I see to talk about the Haredi world. You've got to be a professor already. I'm going to be a professor too. You become a, you understand, first you have to master the Shasem then you master sociology, and then they now have a new title. I couldn't believe my eyes. Look into the new catalog. His eruption reconstruction is already put him that you have medieval Jewish literature, responsive literature, all these topics, and you see, and professor of Haredi contemporary civilization. So let me say a word too of interest to you. That Watch what I'm about to say. It's a very, what I'm saying now is very profound. You have to understand, not many people can say what I'm about to say. What do I mean by that? You have to have lived the period, studied the period, understand the period. But watch. You see, the Litvisha and the Pelisha that came to America, they came into a society that was there before. So they found expression. Litvisha Jews already had built yeshiva all over America. Polish Jews. There was Hasidists in America. There were Polish shtibels in America. So willy nilly, a Litvish found the niche. A Polish Rub found the niche. The Hungarians didn't exist in America. You didn't have Hungarians. Whatever the reason was, Hungarians that came to America before 1940 assimilated into the general trend. You want to Bring me a proof that I'm right. Bring me a, the biggest proof of all, Mr. Shraga Fivel It's an irrefutable proof. No one could understand how did this Hungarian get the Torah Vedas. He was the manial of Torah Vedas, but he was not. his money was the manial of Torah Vadas already. He was a Hasid. You understand what I'm saying? He couldn't be a Hungarian. The Hungarian genre had no place yet on the American scene. You'll take uh, uh, Yeshiva Sibitz khanan what you call Yeshiva University. There is one Rebbe of Shmuel Gershnefeld, He was Hungarian posse. He never fit into the Yeshiva. The other rebellion he was the Polsek. He ran the Beton. There, there was no RCA Beton yet. The Beton in YU was the precursor to the RCA Beton. from Shmuel Gerstenfeld. And he, Parshat you didn't fit in as Hungarian. And and that's why there was no Glat Kosher in America. Who heard of Gladkosha Kosher before 1940? Who heard of these things? Who paid attention to it? Rebani Shalaylam, a Litvak 8, Kosher, a Polish Jew ate Kosher. You never heard of Glat Kosher. Then the Hungarians came in, mainly refugees. And following World War II, they established a presence in America that's unbelievable. And they were called the Sherita Plata. Because they really were a Sherid Plata. A Polish Rebbe, a Hasidic Rebbe came into a situation that existed before. The Lubavitch Rebbe came into a situation that existed before. A, a Litvish the Altamira, the Shanghai Crown, came into a situation that existed before. Even Labarin Kutler with Lakewood and the Alta Kledska, but there was an RJ, RJJ, became a feeder school for Lakewood. There was something to build upon. The Hungarians created Yezhmeyayan. And today they're one of the most dynamic parts of Torah in America. And they changed the whole level of observance in America. Today in America, the OU doesn't give a heksha on a meat product that's not glot kosher. I once asked Manny Holsey years ago, he, I, said, I said, Manny, where does the OU come to glot kosher. You know what the Rev held from glot kosher. The Rev, the Rev, say the Manny, we all know the rub The rub was not a fan of glot for many reasons. Manny said to me, it's dollars and cents. You can't sell in America today. The Satmar is so large, the Hungarians are so large that if you're not got kosher, you cut off a third of the Torah market. And this is what's and for I, and I have to pay respect to the Hungarians before 1950, they had no influence whatsoever. As we go into the year 2000, all our Hasherem in America danced to a Hungarian tune because Baruch Hashem, there are tens and tens and probably well over a few hundred thousand. Now, the Siyash was such an individual. And watch and they were posting, see, they their whole Dereking Psak was different. Uh, they were very hesitant, very diffident. Whatever it was about Hungary, the Kadash Asul Torah of the Khatam Sofa was very dominant. Willy nilly, it affected the Hungarians right down the line. This will explain to you, those of you familiar with the Minchat Yitzchak, and I'm not going to give examples now, I have no time now, but those of you familiar, the Minchat Yitzchak, uh, Yosef Weiss, who was Beitin of the Eidach before that the Beitin of Manchester, he was Hungarian Talmud Hachim, first-rate Hungarian Talmud Hachim from the famous Weiss family. They, these were post of Hakim. You read his chivat, time and again you'll see he reaches a lenient conclusion. ha <laughs> He's so diffident to be makehell, and those were the Hungarians, he could always feel the hesitancy. So now you have a terrible question. It's 1951. This woman last heard from her husband in 1941. It's a tragic story, And as I told you, the whole Holocaust, the whole Holocaust, is filled with these stories of last-minute decisions of Visa King from America it wasn't good for the whole family, the man is waiting for another visa that'll include him, his wife, his daughter, he suddenly gets a, 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 she, the wife, is suddenly invited to England with the daughter, they go to England, he's waiting for the visa to come back for America before you know it, the Nazis overrun, and he is sent away to the Celts, to Poland, into a labor camp. And the last, he hears from his wife, hears from him in London, they had agreed they had, they had an uncle, a great Tom Hohem in Chicago And they both knew the uncle's address. And they made up that after the war, they'll all contact the uncle in Chicago, and that's the way they'll be reunited. Now, I think I quoted to you last week, and it's, again, a very important volume, Sarudu Palid Bimei HaShoah, Rabbi Dr. Zarech Vahavtik, the great Rabbi Zarech Vahavtik. And I told you what the mindset was, because this is something, as a child, as growing up, as an adult, I never understood it. What was the mindset of these Jews? and Rav Rav says so insightfully everyone knew Hitler was a tragedy no one knew that it would last for so many years no one ever dreamed he would kill 6 million Jews they took the attitude 1939, 40, 41, 42 it'll have to be all over, a few thousand Jews will be dead but it's no different than the crusades, no different than any other period so these people, no one could dream and the last letter she got from her husband, how he's blind in a labor camp, and how he has one comfort that his wife and daughter are safe in London. And now it's 1951, she's in Williamsburg, she wants to remarry. So I showed you last week, Reb Tzwihir Schmeisel uh, puts together a Sveik Sveiko, which is obvious. The man here is already in a labor camp, he's ill, He's a lot more than Reb Moshe. Reb Moshe would only be mati if he had something to base himself upon. Here you have what to base yourself. It's not just that the man was less seen in kilts, Poland. Here we know he was in a labor camp, he was blind, he loved his wife, he loved his daughter. The majority in a labor camp, ill, you die, they kill you, they starve you. Row the dead. It's out of the dindi or writer. The second suffolk is no lot immediately, simultaneously, concomitantly. Had he been alive... They would have contacted each other. They searched for each. She searched for him, checked all the lists. And again, I described to you the problem when you don't have uh, computerization, what it meant to check the lists. Now, so Rabtziyash Meisles wants to be Matya. He gets a letter from one of the big Rabbonim in Brooklyn at that time, the Chimperov, um, also Hungarian, Reb Moshe David Eistreicher. Or Ost, I believe in English we pronounce it Astreicher, O S T. I don't know. Maybe some of you from uh, Borough Park. Maybe some of you from Borough Park. I no, can't. Maybe some of you from Borough Park can help me. Is there a continuation to the I family? are there, there There is. It has to be his ainikol today. The Moon It has to be an enigle. This is the Hungarian. It has to be a, a, a grandson. So Rabbeinu said that the rav and he writes to Reb Tzvihish Meislis that he doesn't agree with the hetta. And he writes. And he was a big, post an older man. Now it evidently happened. See, watch what's going to happen here. Reb Tzvihish wrote to him. After all, he lived in Williamsburg. The woman lives in Williamsburg. And he writes back to him, I got your letter. And I lost the letter. It's a human document. This is, I once gave lectures on this. A respondent has to be very organized. See, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, in his letter, in his Trivet to Me, which believe it or not, today is worth a lot of money, a Ketav it's from a Moshe, and it's the original Ketav where he crosses out, then he would make a clear copy this is, and keep the clear copy send you that's before the Xerox machines and send the inquirer the original copy that original copy is worse more than the clear copy because it shows the cross-outs, what he thought how he changed his mind so um, I've often said a response has to be organized Rav Meishra apologizes to me it's not in the safe it's in the letter that paragraph he left out when he published that I sent the letter to, east, to, to, to the east side and it was during the summer he was up in the country already so he apologizes that it took two weeks for the letter to reach him in the Catskills. And, and he apologizes that, that he couldn't, that's why the the is delayed. Could you imagine? I mean, I'm, I can remember as a kid when I pulled out that letter from my mailbox on 2115 Washington Avenue and I saw the return address, uh, Rabbi M. Feinstein. Uh, it was unbelievable. And he apologized yet. You take Vajir, you're Yosef, I can tell you, I didn't manana, you understand? This is why it's very hard for me to criticize Rabbi Vajja, although his tongue can go wild, but I'm a la mitzvot, rabbinic hi, 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 hyperbola, whatever you want to call it. The, uh, I'm the, uh, my friend, Ayakon uh, Rubinstein, had to announce today they're not going to investigate. He backed down. Of course, they had to back down. If they start investigating Rabbi Vajir, there'll be riots on the streets, and then there's going to be an outcry. Why don't you investigate the judge who said black vermin? And uh, why don't you investigate Barak who said Na'ar? I told you, Barak saying Anachnu Norim" is the equal of Ravavadjah's Boa uh, they, they, they are the opposite of each other. It's a mirror image. So uh, my friend, i uh, back down. Baruch Hashem. It was on the news at 4 o'clock. So um, Ravovaj, I had this tremendous problem with the Agunah where I was in and Agunah with the fake Sveik Sveika. But who am I? Uh, little Ani Rothkoff from the Bronx who gives a hoot about uh, a dummy like me. But I had to get Ravavaja behind me and I went to Ravavadjah. I couldn't believe Ravaja said to me, this this was Friday, Ravavaja said, come back a week from this Sunday to my house. Told us where to come, not to the office. To his house. He'll have the shiva waiting for us. We came back a week from Sunday, ten days later, two Shabbat in between, a 20-page type, handwritten, not type, this was handwritten, a 22-page handwritten shiva on legal-sized paper, was waiting for us. That's, 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 uh, so here, the, you're talking about what, that that the rabbi striker was an old man, a sick man. He says, I lost your question. I don't remember all the Pratim And he says, I have to answer you the little bit I remember briefly. And he writes, then he says, I remember the question, he refers to Hitler, come Shmo, Yamach Shmo, and, and then he raises the issue. He says, what do you mean, the Saguna? How many people wound up in Russia? And we could never hear from them afterwards. And here's the real problem, that tens of thousands of Jews wound up in Siberia. They were trapped in Russia. Now, Jack knows I've said this vote over many times. It's from Mordechai Gift. It's a meritic word. You fellas can't appreciate this vat. Russia was a world power. When I was growing up, we were frightened stiff of Russia. When they spent up the Sputnik, America went crazy. And you look into one of the early editions of tradition, you'll see an article, Red or Dead? And I told you when debating teams debated this was one of the topics is that if the Russians conquer us, do we become communist or do we give our lives, red or dead? And and Russia was a world power. So Gifter once said a merit which I could only appreciate when I got to Russia. What happened to Russia? Russia was a backward country. Russia is today a backward country. When I got to Russia, 85% of Russia was off limits to tourists. The communists didn't want you to see what life was really like there for the tourists. They showed you the pumpkin villages. And Russia, we, were, we didn't know the truth, of course. We didn't know how rotten the core was. But suddenly, America's afraid of Russia. How? Why? And Rabbi said it was the only country in Europe. Well, I'll say one of the few, but of the major countries, the only one that didn't kill Jews. Poland helped the Nazis. Lithuania helped the Nazis. White Russia helped the Nazis. Latvia helped the Nazis. Even the white Russians helped the Nazis. Not Russia. Any Jew who made it to Russia was not killed by the Russians. But what the Russians did, they took all the refugees and threw them far away from the battlefield, the front, where they had to feed them and worry about them. They threw them to Siberia. The attitude being, drezech hierikep. It's your problem. But if you survive Siberia, and I know many Jews who survived, they were safe. No one killed them, no one troubled them, no one tortured them. Everyone in Siberia had a hard life, Jews included. But they were not prisoners, they were free. But this is where they were domiciled because in Russia you couldn't live where you wanted and they didn't want you in Moscow or Leningrad which obviously tremendous battles were being fought. They didn't want more people to worry about, more heads to feed go to Siberia, the Nazis are not going to get there. And Rav Mordechai said, a meritic That's why they were rewarded, they became a world power. And I've, and I've, I've said this over to other people, like Bat Sheva Hutner, she told me it's a meritic thought because she was in Russia, and she said she saw this up close. So the problem was, after the war, there was no correspondence. Once you were caught in Russia, you became part of the communist empire. And the communist empire, there was very little chance to correspond with your relatives on the other side. The, the, the Iron Curtain. This was the problem. And he says, the guy is in Russia. And uh, and, and, and he says, how do you know that he's not alive? And, and Chippenker Rav says, maybe we have to be haishish, that once the Russians took over the area, sent them into Siberia, and there were thousands of people like this, because you remember in 1940, the Russians moved in to White Russia, to Poland, to Lita, took over the area, and they had made this pact with the Germans, no one ever believed they would fight each other, remember Hitler was treacherous, it was a pact that he knew was going to break, like Arafat, and, and the Russians sent thousands of Jews Away into Siberia, and he says, he says very simply, they now living in Russia. He was a human being. He recovered. He needed a wife. He married. And 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 he says very simply that maybe he remarried. Maybe he remarried. And and. And he says, you can't say, maybe you're and I have to tell you. The man can be the firmest man in the world. It's 1946, 1947. You're caught up in Russia. You're never going to get out. There's an iron curtain. You can't correspond. You can't write. You can't do anything. You have to go on living. He needs a wife. All right, you remarry. You're anonymous. You're it's not the end of the world. You can find, even the firmest person in the world can find a heta. So he remarried, and of course he had children, his second wife. He'd never, now he doesn't want to find his first wife. It's all over. He have to start again. His daughter, it's all gone. It's forgotten. This is a human being. I want to tell you, psychologically speaking, there's so much truth to what... The Chippen Karab is saying here, it's unbelievable. See, goes, this is this is resilience, this is resilience. Some people can't overcome tragedy. There are people like that. And I, God forbid, I, I pray to HaKadzibarach, you shouldn't bring me the day sayon. But there are other people that they have tragedy and they overcome it somehow. They overcome it, they go further. They have that resilience. They can bounce back. And what can be a greater tragedy than to be caught in Russia, your wife and daughter, no way to reach them. So five, six, seven years later, he meets another woman with a similar background, who also caught in Russia. He marries her, has a new family. At this point, he doesn't want to reach his family, his original family. So it's a very frightening point. And he says something else here that is that just a continuation, so logical. Very logical. He says, look, what does a mean? A is based upon the fact that the man could have contacted his wife. Could have. A normal person wants to contact his wife. But he says, in our case, this does not apply because he refers to Russia the And I mean, this is very powerful, and it's absolutely true. When I was, you know, going back and forth, when I was running the whole operation there, so uh, some students knew I was involved, people knew I was in Russia, I'd been to Russia, no one knew what I was really doing or the breadth of what I was doing. But I remember one time, one of my students, let him remain nameless, it's a name that I've mentioned before in the Kollel. but his naivete, he says, are oh, you smuggling people out with you? I ain't mean, this guy smuggling people out of Russia. You know what the borders were like? You, you, you know what it was like coming into an airport in Russia? You know what customs was like? What passport control was like? There's no way you could smuggle anyone out. No way you could cross. And what do you think? You see these uh, the, the, these detective stories or these serials or these thrillers on the movie. They're crossing the Polish border. They're bribing guards. What are you talking about? The Russians, one boss would shoot the other Russian. You know how many people executed in the Russian army? You're dealing here with a, with a primitive, cruel society where the corporate state counts ahead of every individual. No way. I don't know of any Jew of the refused nikim who were smuggled out. Yes, after World War II, it's true that they crossed the Poland, you could cross from Russia to Poland if you can prove originally you were a Polish citizen and you had influence in Russia and, and there were enough hierarchy Jews in, 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 in the KGB who had mercy on you so they let you go to Poland and from there you could ultimately emigrate to Israel. But that, that was done in broad daylight, but to cross the border without papers, without permission, he's right. Sagur un just like Yericho I mean, they knew, you see, there were other cases like this you understand, they knew what was going on the Chibinu Rab, Rab- Rabdov Verish Videnfeld, the famous Chibinu Rav Zechot HaRacha he was in Siberia and his Chidush Torah from Siberia he wrote once there was no paper, scraps of paper he would get hold of scraps of paper and write Chidush Torah but he survived, came on to Yerushalayim afterwards But but he says, the fact that the man could be in Russia and he can't contact Avad doesn't apply. Avad applies if you can pick up a phone, if you if you can write a letter, if you can mail a letter, if you know the letter will be delivered. Avad applies if you can send a telegram. How does Avad apply when the guy is caught up Sagur or Misugaret? And then he says something else. The fact that he was sick could have very well could have very well uh, had had a medical doctor doctor found the cure people are sick people have problems with health doesn't mean that it's terminal he was a relatively young man problems with vision problems with sight maybe it was cured afterwards so the, 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 the Chimpa Rav says I'm not ready yet to agree with your Hetta maybe you can give me more details and and uh, I'll deal with it then so it's fascinating Simon Samach Bet, by the way, the, that, that was Simon Samach The original triple was Simon Samach. Then the Chippeka Rev's letter to him is Samach Now we're Samach Bet, 1951. Everything is dated here, so it's beautiful. You can follow the the Shalut of the Shaklevitariya here. And, and he writes to him, and you can see that Rav uh, Majlis of Chicago, that, that he's looking up to Rav Ostreicher as a Gon Mufak. He writes to him. Hi, Gon for some peira hadro. And they were there were a lot of great rebbeim. I mean, I don't know if the name means anything to you, but I remember when I was growing up, the greatest posack in Williamsburg was Rabbi Yonason That name mean anything to you? You never heard the name Rabbi Yonason He was the posack achron of Williamsburg. Also, Hungarian survivor Gonadia. The satan rebbe would go to him for a posack, Rabbi So here, and he writes to him. With such derecheretz, and he writes, I see that you didn't want to agree with me. Lachatfila, you have raised, you have raised many, many valid, valid questions, and uh, I want to answer you one by one. And he says, first of all, that he wound up marrying someone else, and that's why he doesn't want to contact his wife. So here he says, look, this man was from. A firm person, to story about the And he says, I can't believe that a firm person would marry a second woman and put himself into Khayram. Now, I have to say, I don't know if this applies today. I have my feelings that today in the Clinton world, you understand, this is 1951. 1951, everyone looks back, oh, 1950s, they were prudes, they were conservatives with a small c. It was a terrible world. Uh, I don't know if it was a terrible world it was a beautiful world I grew up in the 50's and I, I hope I don't bear too many great scars for having decency and respect for women and for sex etc so I don't know whether this applies but uh, it's interesting the mindset here that, that the the Binyan Sion the Binyan Svirata couldn't conceive that a frum Jew would marry a second wife and the over, Rabenu Gashem. Then he says something else that um, it's something very fascinating. He says not only that during the Cold War and the early forty, late forties, early fifties, everyone h- had hopes that Russia would open its doors to the Jewish refugees. Now the truth is, they did slowly but surely. If you could prove that you were not Russian to begin with, they let you go to Poland, as I said, let you go to Romania, and slowly but surely, these people made their way to reach Israel. So there was hope. He says, as long as there's hope, and he describes Russia at that time, why do you say the man should take a second wife? He lived with his first wife, the Ava the and now that there is hope that the Gavulat HaMedina will open as long as there is hope then this man certainly, certainly will make every effort and not give up the battle now that's a very interesting point and it's historically very true and in all the memoir literature of the period you'll see how many people did manage they got back to Poland. They got back to Romania. Some got back to Hungary. From all these countries, there was a slow but steady Aliyah to Israel. As far as Romania goes, the truth has to be told. It now all came out when cherochevsko fell. Ten years ago, I think it was, that he was executed. It turned out that the state of Israel was buying Jews from Romania. All the years, he set a quota, sold them, I don't know what it was ahead, $5,000 ahead, I don't recall already, and the state of Israel spent tens of millions of dollars buying Jews out of Romania. So, he makes a very valid point then. Now, then he says something else, and this again is so fascinating, if you live the period, he says, wait a minute, what do you want to say with Avad You want to say a Vanzichro is not applicable here. How could he contact? He says, there's mail from Russia. There's international agreement. He could have mailed a letter. The fact that he didn't mail a letter shows he's not alive. Gentlemen, this is a very questionable point. There was mail in Russia. First time I was in Russia, I'm walking the streets with Ayay Katsin, Aryeh Avaisov at the time, today the principal of Sinai Academy for Russians in Bensonhurst. And Ayay, this was one of my first students in Moscow. And Ayay's Makatov until today, although he's part of the Haredi world, he always tells people my first Rebbe who taught me Gemara was Harav Rakhefet. And he says it would rate their inherits. So I'm i Hayek, he's to me. Anyway, his home was the first home which I taught Gemara in Russia. And his home was the home that just a month earlier the KGB had raided, and believe me, I look back now, I don't know where God gave me the guts. Right in that room where they raided a month earlier, six weeks earlier, there I am teaching Gemara with the orders from the Mossadia, how to do it, how many to allow in, and to check the waters to see whether they're going to allow the Gemara class to start up again. It's unbelievable how they would sit in Tel Aviv, and in the graph, I can paraphrase the Gemara in, in Psachim, that they sat in Tel Aviv and their net was spread all over Russia. So um, when I'm working with I in the streets of Moscow, I see two mailboxes, red and blue. And I say to him, what does this mean? And he explained to me, one mailbox is lo- like we have in Israel today, one mailbox is local mail and one mailbox is out of Moscow. And then he breaks into a big smile and he says, but it really doesn't matter where you mail the letter because all the mail winds up in the hands of the KGB. And you see, this is absolutely so. It was amazing. Here you have an international agreement. Mail is supposed to be mailed. Mail is supposed to be delivered. Russia, when you sent a letter overseas, when a letter came in to Russia, maybe 90% of the time the letters did not go out, the letters did not go in. And I can tell you that as a fact. And even where you sent a letter registered, receipt requested, you get back that receipt with a forged signature signed by the KGB. So it's not so simple, and I know as a fact, I know how many letters I sent and how few arrived at their destination when the people got out, I then found out the truth, and I showed them, but I got back cards that you received it, and they showed me that the signature is a forgery, it's not their signature, and, go and you're an American, he's signing in Russian go and recognize, yes, a forgery, not a forgery, you're, 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 you're a newcomer. So you see, this is a very important point here that he makes. He says, your concept here is not entirely right. Not entirely right. In a normal country, yes, in Australia, if I send a letter to America 99% of the time, that letter gets through. If I drop a letter in the mailbox in Canada to Israel, 99% of the time it gets through. But if I drop a letter in communist Russia circa 1950 to the United States of America, 99% of the time it didn't get through. And at this point during the Stalin era, if God forbid you got correspondence from relatives overseas, you were persecuted, you, you were hounded, you were sent to Siberia. They were worried you were corresponding with subversive elements, you were revealing state secrets. It was a terrible period in the history of mankind and the history of Russia remember this is Stalin at his height this is Stalin mamish before the doctors plot before he becomes a paranoiac here already he kills people like flies he has paranoia but of a different type and this is Stalin at its height 1950 1951 and and how do you say guys gonna send a letter it's not shy not possible could be very interesting what he says to the chip rub very interesting and he ends off the letter if he makes all his points. He says, <laughs> And I, you know, beautiful, and it's a thought that we've spoken about. The woman is young, the woman is pious. We have to do everything we can to help her. Now, this becomes very interesting. Once again, I wonder when, when the Chippeka Rub died, because he writes here he was sick again. He was in the hospital for four weeks. And uh, this letter already is written at the end of 1951, Hanukkah time, Beit Hanukkah. And he says, uh, uh, I, "I I I couldn't write to you from the hospital. When I came home, my hands were shaking, and I couldn't write at all." He's what he's describing here can be Parkinson's, said, but he says, doki I respect you. And to do something for this woman, I waited till I could write something, and I wrote a few paragraphs to you. And he wrote what takes a page of rabbinic Hebrew in type. And and uh, he says, yes, the biggest problem is the fact she's in Russia. And even though, and this comes back to the Chiba we spoke about. Remember the Cape Town shiva, the South African shiva, with the person, by the way, in the last issue of Tradition, there's a very fascinating article on Baruch Price's hometown on South Africa. Very fascinating. Because I never really knew a little bit about South Africa, but what a beautiful description of the Lithuanian community, the orthodoxy, and the shtibble mentality. And the two rabbis described in the article, the last two so called non shtibble rabbis, are both people I know well. From Yeshiva University Rabbi Norman Bernhard uh, who was a year or two older than I am he was a very interesting character in the Yeshiva Ephraim I appoint you to tell all this to Baruch he was the only person I ever knew in YU. he came from the Midwest if I'm not mistaken who walked around with a dog he had a dog while he was in the dormitory that was unheard of in our days a dog was a a a, caliph, a hunt, a tree for animal who had a dog in Israel every Jew has a dog but in the Chutz he had a dog could be, um, could be he, he became a rabbi in the Midwest. Could be he didn't come from the Midwest. I don't recall. And he later became a Lubavitcher. So he already, his modernity was compromised in South Africa. He became a full-fledged Lubavitcher. Very a Talmud of the Rav who became a total Lubavitcher. Very interesting. The other person in the article was my classmate, Jackie Steinhorn. And Jackie Steinhorn he, Taka, remained a Wayu person, modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox. I remember the the Chagasmicha, two people were chosen to speak. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm right or wrong, at our Smicha graduation, at our Chagasmicha, Abba Branspiegel said the uh, pilpel ask me if i right or wrong, I don't recall, was Abba, Jerry, I don't recall, but I think it was Abba, I may be wrong, but one thing I do remember, the rabbinic speech was given by Rabbi Steinhorn, Jacob Steinhorn. and I remember, he quoted in front of the Russian Yeshiva, Gadol Yisrael, in his speech, he quoted, Chaim Nachman Bialik, and I remember, a ripple went through the audience, you understand already, in the 60's, The schism was there. And even Aaron Rakevet wouldn't have the guts to quote Chaim Nachman in front of my Rebbe, Rav Salaveji, it wasn't a problem, but in front of Rav Yeruchim Geralek, Rav Shmuel Volk, I give my Rebbe heart failure. That much I don't want to do. If I want to quote Bialek, I'll quote him in private conversation with the Rav, but not in public. But Jackie quoted Chaim Nachman Bialek. And I'm happy to see in tradition, he has not changed over the years. He's still the centrist, modern orthodox, but even he admits that when he steps down from the rabbinate, his successor will be, if I may quote the article, more yeshivish, quote, end quote. In parentheses, that I know about his personal life, that doesn't make me too happy. That you'll shouldn't think the Rebbe's naive. I taught his children in Machon Gold. And one of his daughters married, one of my finest students in the Kolel. Swee Bernstein is married to the Rona Steinhorn. Now, um, th- this question, Rabbi Zulchanan says in the trivia to South Africa, that the man promised to write. The minute he gets to Cape Town, he's going to write to his wife. The fact that he didn't write shows he never reached Cape Town. So, the Chippenker Rabb says, here, you want to apply Rabbi Yitzchol Khanan, you want to apply that thought. But once again, I have to tell you, he was impossible for him to write because he's in Russia. And here it comes in. Okay. Okay. V'chem dibati imaran ha-gon had sadik misat meshlita. V'yomad dayton noter ki hu adayin b'medinat russiya u b'shem yesh alafim urobovot she'em shum mavon litvadan mishem shum dava. V'dayton so you see that? He quotes the Satmarav, and you have to know already who the Satmarav was. Rabbi Eilish this was this was uh, Wow Ain Maharina quotes the Satmarav that he spoke that he spoke with the Satmarov and the Rebbe said, Pashut, you're not allowed to be Matig, he's in Russia. And the Satmarov was the survivor, he went, you understand, and he was involved heavily. And, and he says, Pashut, it was a double Pashut. Tens of thousands are in Russia yet. This man, though me among them, and the Rav didn't want to be Matve. And nevertheless, nevertheless, he backs down, and the Chitmakarav, Joints in the heta. Since ten years already went by, and since the woman did all the drishat and and everything possible that she could do, the ain't kol v'ainonair, and it's certainly not an isediyaraita. It's only today, Maim Shainla himself. And since I saw your entire country that you sent me again, and he refers to it kulo machmad, kulo mantakdim, vekulo machmadim, and he says ule maser kedai kol hanisnifim shekhatav besifro countries takanet agunat hanal ukedai hem lismochalehem b'makom migum beshat hadachak. And you see, even though the Satmar Rebbe was so Unanimous, uh, in his opinion. So, uh, insistent that he was right. Nevertheless, he says it's no longer a writer, it's only the rabbonon, it's shatachachado, it's after ten years, ten years since she got the last letter, the drishat rachakirat were got, done, and then this is a rabbinic expression, gam yadi yad Does, Do you fellas know what it means, yad kei ha"? Which uh, yad? Yad the left hand, righty left, the lefty right hand, your weak hand. It becomes a rabbinic aphorism. Yad You see, it's a rabbinic expression. I just saw or one of the Russian sheep. And why you asked me to check something out for him? So I wrote back in rabbinic Hebrew. You know what I'm referring to? Yad yad magat. It's bidikat. When a woman checks herself, so the halacha is, ad yad magad. So it becomes rabbinic aphorism, two things. Yad keha, humility. Who am I? What am I? My weak hand. You follow me? Adcha yadi ha magad means I was bodaic like a woman as far as I could go. So that's what he says here. That, an, gam yadi, yad keha, maskim in quote ha gad go no shlita, la but he says, nevertheless, I want you to get another great Talmud Chacham to join with us, so there should be three Rabbanim who are recognized, who will be Mati to this woman. And sure enough, in Simon Samachtalid, you have uh, the letter from Rabbi Zvi Hishmaizlis. Who does he write to? Another famous name, Labriut Labriut. Um Wait, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Uh, so, in, in, in uh, Simon Samachtaler he writes back to the Chippin Karev, and he tells him the good news that he received a letter from the greatest Godel in Yudushalayim in the world of Heta Raguna, Reb Shlomo David Kahana, and that he joined in the Heta. Now, uh, who is Reb Shlomo David Kahana? Uh, just Al-Regalachat, he was Avveytin and in Wasa. Avveytin and Wasa. And he was a giant of giants, got out right before the Holocaust, settled in the old city of Yerushalayim. He was the Rub of the Ir ha-atika He was one of the last to get out of the Attika. When the Jordanians were about to conquer it, they allowed the Jews in there to escape. And he came over to the west part of Jerusalem. He was the chief rabbinate's expert on heterogene. And every heterogene, basically, of a woman who survived the Holocaust went through the hands of the great Paul Saykh Rabb Kahana. His son was the Mankal of the Mistrada that taught for many, many years. Uh, Zanvil Kahana, Dr. Zanvil Kahana. Shmuel Zanvil Kahana he died maybe a year or two ago he must have been close to 100 years old that was his son his granddaughter Nehama Kahana was one of the first Israeli girls to come study in Stern College in the 1950's sophisticated religious Israelis who wanted their children to have a dual education had no way to do it in the state of Israel Mahon Lev didn't exist, bar was barely on the map and you, a, a religious girl just didn't go to Hebrew U in those days. It's not like today when on the Hebrew U campus you'll see uh, hundreds and hundreds of kipat and women who are from, it's a different ballpark today. The whole world has changed and of course Jerusalem has changed more than any other place in the world as far as Frimkite goes. So in those days she was one of the first to come to America. His granddaughter is a Stern College graduate. Married to the man who was dean of Gold for a number of decades, Dr. Gavriel Chaim Kohen, the grandson of the chief rabbi of Basel, in whose home Rav Cook stayed when he got caught in Europe, when he went to the preliminary Agudat Yisrael organization. Gentlemen, you have to know something in life. If Yisrael, why, you guys have to know something? Torah and everything around it, the history of Torah. And Rav Cook went to Europe 1912, the preliminary meeting of LaGurit Yisrael, which then was to unite all Torah Jews in the world. And he was traveling then, they decided, it was 1912, twelve. Twenty twelve they decided to hold the first Kanisha in 1914 and launch LaGurit Yisrael. And Rav Cook went, and he got caught in Europe, World War One broke out, it never took place, and Guru was never organized until 1919. By then they made the decision that anyone who believes in 17 Jewish state before the coming of Messiah is an apicoros, so that they automatically knocked out all the Mizrahi element. But Rav Kook got stuck in Europe. He wound up in Switzerland, in Basel, and he stayed at the home of Gabby Cohn's grandfather, the Basel of Rav, stayed there for two years. And then in 1916, Magzikei Haddad in London opened and they looked for Rav and Rav Kuk came to London to become the rabbi of the Magzikei Haddad and it was from the Magzikei Haddad in London that he went in Aliyah to Yerushalayim as the chief rabbi in 1919 he returned Latmat Kodesh as chief rabbi so this is this is Shlomo David Kahana, and this is the family and this was the man and and he writes Rav Tzvihir Schmeissels writes to Rav Oystreicher. I have, first of all, I got you a wonderful letter, and I was so thrilled that you wrote to me about my Kuntras, Kulam Antakim, Kulam Ahmadim. You see, he related to him as a, as a Talmud to a Rebbe. Yaminli, believe me, that when you compliment my Kuntras, I was overjoyed, but I didn't want to write it with Hidushim. I didn't want anyone to enjoy it. I just had to write it to save this woman, to help this woman, because we have so many difficult problems. And he tells a story here, which is very important. He says, and this is why when I was in Auschwitz, I promised HaKadosh Baruch that if He'll help me survive, imagine, if Tzvi Yishmaizlish was in Auschwitz, he says, if God will help me survive, liatud mutzal meyesh, and he says, "I'll do everything possible to help the agunot and the agunim." I promised the Kaddish Baruch and when I survived and I was appointed Rav Harashi of the British area. Now you know what that's talking about, right? The British area after World War II. They each took a different part of Germany. It was divided up. The Americans, the German, the Americans, the British, the Russians. And in each area, there were DPs by the tens of thousands. Of course, all the DPs tried their best to get out of the Russian area and get into the American and English areas for obvious reasons. And he was the chief rabbi of the British area of the displaced persons. And he says, Hayuli Gviat He says I had all types of gviat and I did everything possible to help to do our best to, to try to help these poor people. And this is why I'm doing everything now. And he says, the, and this is beautiful. The ain't a what has I about shivka, shivka, uh, al, 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 yamsuf. You understand? A and that's so true. That is so true. When I came back from Russia, I was crazy. I couldn't contain myself. Whatever I could do. And you know, my closest friends who knew what I was a little bit involved with, they thought I was crazy. No one can understand it unless you saw it. How can you describe coming from America and Israel and describe people studying Torah afraid of the knock on the door? How can you describe people you taught who wind up in jail a week later, two weeks later? Yosef Bigun among others, Edelstein among others, etc., you can't describe it to people how can you describe people meeting in secret with cold words to talk about Eretz Yisrael to talk about Zionism the Russian miracle is indescribable but ain't it done he's apologizing why do you think I'm so crazy why do you think I'm, I'm, I'm so hip on this topic why do you think I'm so involved because I was in Auschwitz I saw what happened afterwards I promised I would do everything I can and this is why I'm overjoyed that you joined with me and here's the letter that he encloses. This already is the last part of this whole country. And this is already 1952 to Reb Tzvi from Reb Shlomo David Kahana in Yerushalayim. And he writes, I agree with your heter. 10 years have gone by, and to me it's obvious that we can depend upon the be sveik, done, but particularly in this case, where they promised each other that if they remain alive, they will both contact the uncle in Chicago, and everyone knew where to reach this uncle, and this uncle was famous, and Rabbi Yitzhak already said, you, what we spoke about, you can depend upon a promise. This shows that they were faithful to each other, and if they didn't keep the promise, it shows, obviously, a vadzichro, And he says, Allah had come of a comma where the man was blind and can't do any work. And all of you know how the Nazis treated people who were ill, who were blind, and couldn't work. And he says, there are many reasons we can be Matir Saguna. And I've already dealt, listen to what he says here, more than 3,000 cases. And he says... I have found many Heterim and certainly in this case I could find endless Heterim but there's no need to. Now, look what he writes here. I says, I would ask you to send me your Kuntres, L'Shleilat Aguna, because what you originally sent me, and this has to refer, of course, to 1948, and it probably is the Kuntres we're going to deal with next, he says, what you originally sent me, Nisraf Payehatika, Biachirun Asvarim, Shahayulisham, Shenisrafu, Alyadeha Aravim. So here you have an absolute document that Achad Megidoli Israel he was allowed to leave the old city running for his life. But his entire rich, beautiful rabbinic library, which is the handmaiden of any rub of any Talmud Chacham, burned to the ground by the Jordanians. And if we had a good lawyer in the class, we should now give Abdullah a bill. Go to his family, find out what that library consisted of, make an evaluation and pass the bill to Abdullah. Reparations for rabbinic library destroyed by the Arabs. There you have it. So, gentlemen, look Look how fascinating this is. Look how fascinating. Three Gadol Yisrael finally agree. Three Gadol Yisrael. The Binyan Svi, the Yitzchit Rav and Reb Shlomo Kahana. Israel mate the woman now this is always the sad part of response literature as I've said many times. What happened afterwards we don't know. What I would love is a footnote the woman remarried had three more children, 25 grandchildren one of them studied in the YU coal Gris, due to will never know that's response literature. It always ends off the Hector is given. The rest belongs to history, but that history, if I may quote my Rebbe, is anonymous. Okay. Now I want to show you something else. This is an amazing, an amazing uh, piece. Again, who's the author? I don't know of any other machabeer who dealt with this problem in such great detail. I'm quoting now from Shelton Shivat Binyan Svi, Chalik Shani, Siman Mem Tet. And this has to be what he's referring to that Rev Shlomo says, You sent it to me and your country was destroyed by the Arab hordes when they razed the Jewish quarter to the ground in the old city. How do I know? Because this country is dated London, 1946. So obviously, it's the chief rabbi of the British zone who's visiting London. And what is he dealing with? Dealing with a different problem altogether. Agunim. The Aguna we have dealt with for unto a year. We began already last year, following through this year. maybe over a year worth of lectures. What about the Agunim? So of course, to will answer very quickly, then Agunim don't have a problem, because Meika had and a man can have two wives correct but there's a the Rabbeinu Geshem and the herim the Rabbeinu Geshem states that Rabbeinu Geshem was sensitive to the problem what about a man who doesn't know the whereabouts of his wife what about a man whose wife becomes insane he can't give her a get you cannot give a shota a woman who is a shota you cannot give her a get you will know this in order to receive a get a woman has to be a badat or a batat. What about such a man? So, of course, all of you are aware the great Rabbi Nugashim left the back door open that if a hundred rabbis from three different states or three different countries will all agree, they can override my Kherim, my Isa, on a man having more than one wife. And it's a very interesting uh, takana that he made. First of all, a hundred rabbis is a very large number. And I imagine he also figured that if a hundred rabbis can agree, that itself will be a miracle. Secondly, he required from three different countries. Now, three different localities. What's interesting is, I don't have time to go into this now, but there's a source for this already in the Rishonim. That when a man gave a get in Germany they they required him to go to three different but Dinim in three different communities and bring back written permission to give a get from all three but dinim from all three different communities. And this is there's a volume came out in Baridano it was a doctorate on uh, the Bishalei yemeh it deals with rabbinic plaque in towards the end of the period of Rishonim in Germany and you see what, what's being said here is very interesting that evidently in Germany they recognized that there are certain problems where human emotion plays a great role in order to be sure that the person is not running with the ball ahead of the crowd or letting his emotions outstrip the halacha or the logic they required three but they did them in three different areas because generally speaking if you go to three different areas people think differently if you can get a sock, from like last Sunday, to Israel, Degala Torah Shas, and the Yeshiva Herzl, uh, and and everyone, and the Edah Haredit gives the same sock. This means already you can run with that ball. There's unanimity. A hundred rabbis, three different, but they did him. Wow, this is fabulous. So you see, the fact that we already find the formal takana. is I'm talking about now. This was this was Medina Chum the famous three communities in Germany, Speyer, Vermeizia, and M- Magensa, If they can have such a Takana, Takana, it shows you this was embedded in German religious mentality of the Jew. And this will explain to you the Takana of Rabbeinu Geshe, Mar Hagola, with the need for 100 gabonim. And this, I'll only tell you as a hint. I listened to, I read the, uh, Jack printed out my talk when I was beaten up by uh, uh, Rabbi Christ with. So, uh, I mentioned to you that I know the history of American Torah, but I don't want to go around. It's unbelievable. People say I made it up. I mentioned to you, give me a hint to what I'm referring to. I'll finish it out. Ask for Peshel Shechta, Ask for Joseph Flowers here now. Ask for Baba Branschman. Let's see who remembers. Am I the only person left with the memory of the history of Torah in America? If this is so, it's sad. But I'll give you a hint. What I'm referring to involves a Cheta Meir Rabbanim. Oh boy, I've now given you a hint almost a full grown dog, Nishna Kleiner hint. Now back here. Back here. Now so you would say Avi is sitting there, Avi how's your wife? What's new? Still holding out. Michael Popkin. I'm having dreams about him. Please get me that address, the facts, whatever you can. Soon once the big son in law is here. Trace him down. On it. it's not finding a, mispl- a displaced person after the war he's alive kicking he Baruch Hashem. gentlemen so what's the problem if you have an agun let him get a chetamey him. gentlemen this is exactly the problem when we speak in terms of agunim when we speak in terms of the tremendous machlokis, Rabbi Salavechik there was a whole machlokis Rabbi Wurtzberger Rabbi Sawa what did Rabbi Salavechik say about a chetamey him? All right, you're dealing with isolated cases at Shayach. You have an RCA conventions. They have one or two cases every year. They come around. They show you who signed. The Rebbe Myshe Feinstein signed. Uh, the the uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky signed. Rebbe signed. So, of course, you wear your signature. But when you have tens of thousands of Magunim, how will you get off the floor? Where are you going to get them the mayor up on it? What's going to happen here? and he comes up with a proposal simply a way to work it out that you can avoid the time the consternation the aggravation and simply on a practical level can you picture tens of thousands of heteragunim each one having to collect a 100 signatures from three different states whatever it means three different countries were not but it means three different but three different states at least three different localities Today probably is enough to have Manhattan, uh, the uh, Queens, Staten Island, but three different localities in America. Generally, they go three different states at least. The work involved, the heartache involved, and you're not dealing with individuals; you're dealing with tens of thousands. So he calls his country's eight la salt la and it's, In other words, he's writing all the Rabbanim. I want to propose to you. And here's, once again, 1946. He has been just been through it. He's come out alive with miracles from Auschwitz. You have to read his Binyan his, Svi his introductions, how he describes what he went through, the Shofan Rosh Hashanah. Some of it is very famous. He says, they are left broken. Nothing is left. Imagine you had a wife and five children. Everyone is gone. And they are knocking on the doors of the bataydinim. Dinim. Let us remarry. Let us start all over again. Let us build new homes. Batim nemanim la Hashem. Ubama Sham Bohimu Vakshim La Soficates Lamat Savamhum Lal and Hamishabram that breaks them Burukhaniut Ubagashmiyot and and he says, Who can describe Hamon hatlaotva ha pat kaot haritsichot asha a dua laim ayade harotshim harzariyim yamahshmamba zakram? I mean of course every word is true. Who can describe if you didn't feel it? People who survived the Holocaust, you understand, you know the word, It was a different planet. How can we understand that? I was an American kid. How can I understand? I was alive at the time. How could I understand? How could you understand to live in a world where death is the norm and life is the exception? How can you describe it to a person? And he says, when I was in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, and later when I well he is referring to Bergen-Belsen not the camp because he was in Auschwitz what he's probably referring to is the British war zone when he survived when he was a DP and he says when I saw all the pain and under Molusia and the helter-skelter the the, the lack of any orderliness in their lives and I saw what they are going through so at that moment I decided I must do something to save these Jews from being in a permanent depression and going out to a tabut ra'ah. And he says something, of course, that's physiologically absolutely true. He says that for an aguna male, it's infinitely worse than a woman. And the reason is one one very simple reason. From the point of view he's speaking here, what 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 is what referring to, why is it worse? Why is it worse? He says, as much as Chazal did for a woman, that was to protect her because a woman needs someone to protect her. We're talking about civilization until modern times. Time and again, the says, a woman is much more anxious to marry than a male. I just learned, the in uh, Yavamat, that, that uh, a woman is desperate. Uh, a, a woman who's a pikrit will marry a deaf man because she desperately wants to be married. But he says with a man, there's physiological pressure, the sexual pressure. A man has infinitely more sexual pressure on him than a woman. And therefore, it's a tremendous mitzvah. If Chazal worried about the aguna, then in our day and age, we certainly have to worry about the agun because of the physiological, biological reality. And he says, La Zot Khov Kodish Okol Ravambi Yisrael Lavo Biyesratashembi Gibarim, he's paraphrasing Shiratavara. Loit Machot it's not a time to be quiet. Viloma and to practice modesty. Mia nohi lahachnis voshibanyanis Rabim Kailo, who am I to lift my head in such difficult matters? And he says, Yes, it's true. Maybe we can be Mati without a hundred rabbis. Maybe we can be mutt here and say, look, the woman is dead. The woman didn't survive. The woman never contacted her husband. Use the klalim, klalim of hetaragunah. Trey rubey. Apply it. Why do you need to have the mayor up on What's good for the goose is good for the gander. What's good for the female is good for the male. If you can be matir and aguna, which is infinitely more severe halachically, because a woman can't have more than one husband, then Allah come, use the same klalim and the same shveikot and the same treidubeh to be matir and agun. Matthew, what do you say? Beautiful. Ah! Oh but he says there's one difference if we do it that way we run we run one terrible risks which you don't have with a woman see with a woman she can't marry her late husband's brother only only you have him but your pacific is he alive, not alive here with the man look what's going to happen you're going to be Mati of the man. Say his wife is dead. She's going to. He is going to marry his wife's sister. Now, you should know. This was Maisim Yom. When it comes to a woman marrying her brother's-in-law, that's only a Din and Yibam. We don't practice Yibam B'sman we don't allow it. It never entered the ballpark. When it comes to a man marrying his sister-in-law, calls man, the original wife, is alive, she's an ever. The minute the wife dies, I would say practically, this is something you don't know, it was minute Yisrael that the man married his wife's sister. You know why? Until modern times, childbirth was very dangerous. Nowadays, childbirth is taken for granted. Of course, once in a while you have a tragedy, and suddenly everyone wakes up, what a sakana childbirth is. But today, Baruch Hashem, childbirth is not dangerous. You go to a Sharit Tzedek, a Hadassah, good hospital, it's not dangerous. Some people they even give birth in their homes. They have students. I have one student from Kong. I think she already had five children in her home in Toronto. Natural natural delivery with a midwife. All right. Childbirth today with modern technique, modern medicine, and it's not dangerous. In two modern times, childbirth was dangerous. Endless women died in childbirth. Suddenly, the husband finds himself a widower, with three little children, one just born. There's no one who was more fitting to raise these children than their aunt, their wife's younger sister. And time and again, I know kids who I went to Solanta with. And as I said to the girls this morning, I was a rare bird in Yeshiva Solanta in the early 40s because the overwhelming majority of the kids their parents were European. I was one of the few kids, and the other kids used to be jealous of me. My father played baseball with Hank Greenberg. Jimmy Fontaine couldn't believe it. He said, Arnie, I can't believe it. Your father played Sandlot Ball with Hank Greenberg. Sure, they grew up the Saint Bronx, the Saint Cretona Park. These pa- his parents were greenhorns. They spoke Yiddish to each other. They spoke English with a heavy accent. And some of these kids, I later learned that their mothers were really their aunts. And these were their aunts too, who became their mothers. And, and these kids totally were ra- totally raised by their aunts slash mothers. So he's making a point here which today we might not understand. But in 1946 it was very applicable. Very applicable. Making a beautiful point here that the woman time and again, might be dead, her sister alive. If you are him like your mother in guna, then the man will believe his wife is really dead. If his first wife is really dead, he can marry her sister. What about the cases, the few cases, where the first wife will be alive? So when you base the Cheta on Trey Rubei, you are running the danger of Mamzerut, of Eva. Why not do it with Cheta meir Abbanim? The minute you do it with Cheta meir Abbanim, no man will be permitted to marry his sister-in-law. And thereby you totally avoid any Torah principle, any Torah Isha, any fear of adultery which is the fear by a woman and by a man any fear of incest any fear of a riot what a fabulous thought he says yes we can do it we can do it when man and woman would be equal but by a woman this fear doesn't exist by a man mother derech trey Rube your mate the assumption his wife is dead, he marries his sister-in-law. And of course, the minute he marries his sister-in-law, perhaps one out of a thousand, the first wife was really alive. We wouldn't someday, it's only a man. We didn't realize he's going to marry his sister-in-law. He marries his sister-in-law. You've created Mamzeret when you didn't have to. Do it. Do it with Hetameer Abunim, and you won't have to. And he says, yes, I agree. But when you do it like an aguna, you're always going to have the problem. Maybe that first wife is alive. And then he says something else. That this is a frightening thought, but he says very simply, if women will see that you're being matier the men in a wholesale fashion, that their first wives are dead, and you're treating them like a gunat, then the women will turn around and say, just as you can be matier the men, you can be matier the women in a similar fashion. Our first husbands are dead. And they'll demand the hetar equal to the man. And of course, the women will not take into consideration that a man can have two, three wives. or a woman can't. And he says, if you do it through hetar you're going to have this problem too. And listen to these words. Listen to these words. And in this generation, parutz, all of Judaism is broken. Every gate is knocked down. you got to worry about this. Could you imagine at a feminist conference, that an ADA conference, you're going to get up and say that men and women are not equal? that a man you can be mot rather quickly because Bedaevity can have more than one wife and a woman you have to suffer and, and be certain because she can't have one wife. Don't go bananas. They'll go crazy. Yesh. Look at his words. What a story. What a fear. And therefore he says, "Don't go with Aguna and Aguna. We have to go, meir rabbanim." three countries do it the old fashioned way don't create problems when you don't have to don't create where you don't have to don't create fear of marrying a sister where you don't have to don't create a difference between man and woman on an elementary basis so that the women will conclude, we can do what the men can do. We're equal. You're not to them, you're not to us. Their wives are dead, our husbands are dead. Don't create this tremendous pressure. Go with head the mayor up on him. However, he says, and I'll end off the class with this, my proposal sounds wonderful, but on a practical level, it's very difficult. If you're going to require a hundred rabbis from three different communities for every individual, who can move on? Could you imagine? 20,000 men are knocking on the doors of the rabbinate, knocking on the doors of the Agudas Harabonim, knocking on the doors of the Hungarian postkin in Williamsburg. 20,000 men are knocking on the doors of Rabbi Joseph Yo, Hank. and I don't want to put the RCA into it because in 1951, they didn't yet have a baton; they weren't the force, they were not yet on the map. I don't want to be anachronistic. They were just starting to formulate themselves. Could you imagine 20,000 men knocking on the doors trying to find A hundred Rabbanim, three different states at every convention, running, going, traveling, back and forth, circulating, DPs, greenhorns, broken survivors, broken in spirit, broken physically. They want to start all over again. How can you require this? And this is the dilemma. This is the problem. What a description. What a problem. What a question. And he comes up with a very fascinating proposal. What that proposal is? One week you're going to have to suffer, thinking, planning, nothing else on your minds. Your wives forgotten. Your girlfriend's muted. Your idea, well, now that Rabbi Miller is gone, I guess it's the Yorah that's secondary. Your idea still haunts you. Rabbi Lichtenstein Shear. Perm is coming. Gentlemen. The year has ended. Let me tell you. The rest of the year we're just thanking Akadosh Baruch Hu, if you remember that the Rebbe exists on Sunday and Monday. May I reiterate what did we accomplish today? Ah, what a shiuch. Satma Rebbe, I love it. Unbelievable. What did we accomplish? And see, the one against the Satma. But it shows you the Satma's mindset. That if he was a Dava Parshat, you can't be Mateh. thing was a davar the husband could very well be in Russia, you can't be Mateh. That's Satma, that's Hungarians. They don't Paschal Pihalacha. If you know the Minchat Yitzchak, they, they're fabulous in analyzing the Halacha. Their Bikir is unbelievable. But Halacha maysa, they have the diffidence of Hungaria, Hadashah, Sumonah, Torah. They are so hesitant to be Mateh even when the halacha seemingly allows for it. And the Satna Rabbi's response is classic Hungarian mindset. What do we do today? Rabbi Svei Hishmaizlis was the center of our attraction, his whole correspondence with the Chippica Rab in Brooklyn, his correspondence with Shlomo Kahana, Kahana. finally all three Gadoilem, are La Halacha, La that poor woman who had not heard from her husband for ten years, and a had to remarry, the woman they describe as a hasita as, as very being very pious, and finally they're able to come up with a hetta for her. It's an amazing correspondence. The side issues are fascinating. Rabbi Shlomo David Kahana, the loss of his library in the very countries we're doing now, burned by the Arabs, his apartment destroyed. How many manuscripts were lost in 48? How many manuscripts were lost? during the Holocaust. How many Gedoli Yisrael, Rebbe Zembe, manuscripts, Rebbe Menachem Krakowski, the Avodat HaMelech, endless, endless creations lost forever. It's a terrible thought, but it's a reality. What's interesting too, is the the uh, Binyan Tzvi's description of how he promised the Kaddish Baruch if he survives Auschwitz, what he'll do for the Agunah, the Agunim, his description of Bergen Bells, the British zone, what he saw, and those words should be taken to heart. We started the whole Kuntjus uh, now on the Agunim. What is his proposal? It's a double-edged sword so far. Hetamir Abunim is fabulous but who can come up with a for tens of thousands of agunim? On the other hand, if you go with and treat her like a woman, like a woman's case, you wind up with men naturally marrying their sister-in-laws who survived. And maybe the first wife is in Russia and you're running a risk of even one in a thousand, but why run the risk of ever of children of Why create a mirror image to a woman's problem when you don't have to? And number two, if you treat them equally, the women are going to learn, if the men can get ahead of that way, why not us? Why do we have to wait? Why are husbands in dead too? And he writes, already in 1946. Imagine what you would write in 2000, in the year of the Clintonese civilization. So uh, it's a fascinating comment. Young people, we'll go further at this point, next week. Uh, tomorrow, Talmud in Rebbe, fabulous material. The Rav, one thought after another. And I hope tomorrow to come right into Shavuot, leave you with material you'll be able to quote for the next 70 years. The Rabbanim, endless material. Tomorrow in the Machshava. I'm delaying speaking about Israeli politics number one a week from now the whole Israeli scene can change a thousand times over so let's delay, let Maftal finish let this one finish maybe we'll have this Pesach and this week but tomorrow I'm responding to your questions to me and comments to me after last week's talk and I have something what I believe at least from my point of view and my thinking my Hashkafa I've reached a magnificent conclusion of where we stand where we're at what we have to do in our world you'll see I'll develop it tomorrow and I'll deal with David Ram I'm out to ram the ram and show him that the ram has to elevate himself to a higher level on the basis of his coming to me and uh, And I'm so by what I said last week what I'll say tomorrow that I agreed to give a public talk on this very topic I believe it's March 17th in the OU Center, Wednesday morning, 10 a.m. I can't give it at night. I don't have the energy at night. It destroys me. But in the morning, I'm fresh like a daisy. And Hashem, I will put my case on the front line after it's forged and sharpened and honed here in the magnificent kollel of Yeshivas Rabbi Yitzchak an affiliate of Yeshiva University, the school that, according to commentator, President Sokol rules with an iron fist. If commentator is correct, my final comments are correct to the second power. and. I'm